Hi, welcome to In the Pacha, where I, Sam Reinstein, Rabbi of Congregation Kol Israel and Prospect Heights, have conversations with different ed- educators about the weekly Torah portion. This week, I'm with Gershon Alpert. Hey, hey Gershon. how are you doing, Sam? Hey, uh, so, I mean, uh, we know each other from our time at YU, but I, I presume a lot of the people listening have, don't know who you are. Uh, so would you mind introducing sure. yourself? Um, so my name again is Gershon Albert, and uh, we were, I think we took like a physics class together at some point in college, and then we were in rabbinical school mm-hmm. together at Yeshiva University. Um, right. So I am now the rabbi of Beth Jacob Congregation in Oakland, California, where I've been for almost four and a half years. Um, and I'm here with my wife, um, our four-year-old daughter, and twins who were born this past summer. Um, in my free time... I enjoy being outdoors, which is great in California, and also music has always been a big part of my life, and it's something that I'm fortunate to be able to continue to do now. Cool. Um, so, yeah, um, it's exciting to have you on. Um, and great to be here. So before, but before we get to some uh, conversation, um, I'm going to try and do a very quick summary of the Parsha uh, as normally 30 seconds. There's no way. When it's when it's stories like this, right. it's a little harder. So I'll try for a minute. That's what we're gonna. Should I time about. you? Okay. Cool. Uh, sure. Jacob favors one of his sons, Joseph, and gives him a multicolored robe, which makes his other brothers jealous. Joseph relates to his brothers two dreams he had, both of which presume that he would bow down to him, which again make him more jealous. Joseph is sent to see how his brothers are faring with the sheep. But then he's thrown into a pit and is sold to a caravan down to Egypt and ends up in Potiphar's house. Using the robe, Joseph's brothers convince his father Joseph had been killed. The story goes to a side story for the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Both Yehuda's first sons died while married to Tamar, so Yehuda refuses to give up his third son. Tamar tricks Yehuda as a prostitute and sleeps with him. Yehuda later admits that he did this. Tamar gives birth to twins. Back to Joseph, he becomes powerful in Potiphar's estate. But it ends with Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, but Joseph doesn't relent. He's then sent to jail where he meets the butler and the baker. He interprets their dreams, and even though the butler goes back to Pharaoh, he forgets Joseph. Oh, that's pretty good. And I think you did that in just under a minute. Okay, perfect. If I can't do 30 seconds, we're going to try for a minute. Um, So I'd love to, there's like so much going on here. and so it's a little difficult to try and pinpoint things. So I'm curious what you uh, what you want. Yeah, to Yeah, it's about. such a rich parsha in terms of many different like stories and stories within stories and um, anecdotes. Um, and I was kind of on the fence about two different pieces. Uh, what I'd like to talk about now is actually inspired to me uh, by a friend who used to live in Oakland, Dan Cohen. So I'm going to give him a shout out here. Um, and it's a piece um, that I first saw by uh, from Rabbi Salvechik um, about Joseph's dreams. Um, and I'd love to just share that idea with you and we can have a conversation about it. Great. Yeah. Cool. So, um, one of the questions that I think really appears out at the beginning of the Parsha is that Joseph just doesn't seem to get it, um, that his brothers like hate him and their hate gets more and more intense throughout the period. You mentioned that first he's given a coat from his father, this multicolored coat, um, and his brothers see that he's more loved and the text in the Torah is by Yisna Uoto. At the beginning of the Parsha, his brothers come to hate him, right. um, which the Torah does not use the word hate um, without taking, right? It doesn't use it often. Um, it uses it sparingly. And clearly there's like a very strong feelings, strong negative feelings. And with that as the backdrop, Joseph starts to have his dreams 
and tells them to his brothers. And the question that I think jumps out of the text for me is, why doesn't he get it? Why, why does he feel right. that he had, of course, if someone has a dream, they can't really control it. But why would you feel the obligation to tell that to people around you? So that, that was kind of my... And especially because he does it tw- right, twice. Right, right. It's even... Right, he doesn't even get yeah, it. Yeah, so uh, just to kind of review the story in a little bit more detail, um, and, and that's what I wanted to focus on. Um, so the first dream, um, this is verse 7 in uh, chapter 37 of Gratiot of Genesis, um, Joseph tells his brothers, that we are binding sheaves in the middle of the field, and he sees uh, there's one sheaf, Joseph's sheaf, that stands up, and all the other sheaves bow down to Joseph, or to the sheaf that represents Joseph. And the brothers respond, uh, Are you gonna, what, are you suggesting that you're going to be our king? And the text is, They came to hate him even more. And to your point, the next verse says, oh, and Joseph had another dream and told that second dream to his brothers as well. And that dream sounds even more audacious than the first one, because now it's not just the brothers involved, but it's also their mothers, their mother and father. And he says, oh, there's this, uh, the sun and the moon and all the st- and 11 stars, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, and they all came to bow down to my star. Uh, and then the brothers get even more jealous. And I actually wanted to focus on the last word in this kind of uh, Parsha, and by Parsha I don't mean the, the entire portion, but um, at least this kind of um, first Aliyah. Um, it's by, by Kanubo Echav that his brothers came to be more jealous of him. The Aviv Shamar and his father guarded the matter, uh, which itself is worth asking, like, what does that mean? Did his father keep a secret to himself? Uh, was his father angry? So those are just a few of the questions that I wanted to focus on this morning. Right. Um, so here, here's an approach. I think there's two ways to look at the dreams uh, from Joseph. Uh, the first is an approach that I, is made um, pretty clear by the Sforno, Rabbi Avadia Sforno, who's an Italian commentator, I believe in the 1500s. Um, so the Sforno says that what's going on here is that Joseph is childish. Um, that he's just a, a childish person. Um, when, if you look at the beginning of the Parsha, he's described uh, that he was acting childishly with the sons of Bilha. And Rashi famously quotes a Midrash that he's like acting, he's playing with his hair and he's acting kind of babyish. But the Sforno's approach um, is that what it means that he was being childish is that he was kind of spreading, ta- he was tattletaling against them. Um, and the Sforno says that when, it, when the Torah describes Yosef as childish, it doesn't mean that he was an unintelligent. Um, it just meant, and he has this powerful language, um, he hadn't been tested by life, and he didn't look at the consequence of his actions. He didn't literally, didn't peer at the end of each matter. So he didn't realize that if he says something mean about his brothers to his father, then his brothers are probably going to get upset about it. And there are better ways. Right, like he was only focused on what he was doing and not, not like... Exactly. And think about the consequences of his actions. Um, so and, part of Yosef's lack of maturity, according to the Sforno, is that he didn't know, or he didn't have the um, insight when he said the first dream to his brothers, when he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Uh, the Sforno really criticizes Yosef for not realizing at that moment that a second dream is probably not a good idea either. That when he said the second dream, 
of good advice, just basic life experience. He was acting like a nar. He was acting like a child at that time. But like he should have just realized, just based on having living in the world, what's going on. Right. And like sometimes, even if you know something to be true, uh, it's better not to say anything if you know it's not going to be received well. Right. Uh, so Seth had a story with Yosef, um, but at the same time, the Midrash says that Yosef's dreams had validity to them. Um, when at the end of this uh, portion, at the end of the first Aliyah, uh, the Torah says that the Aviv Shamar Tadavar, that his father guarded the matter. The Midrash says that Yaakov, the father of the brothers, um, wrote down every word that Yosef said, and also wrote down a prophecy of exactly when it would take place, when these dreams would come to real life, uh, would come true in real life. And so there's something true to what Yosef was saying. He just didn't know how to say it the right way. And that got me thinking about you know, what, what was the validity in these dreams? And more specifically, what dream, what, what did we think about dreams in general? Um, you know, how, how do we understand the meaning or the significance of dreams in the Jewish tradition? So uh, within the Talmud, there's a lot of um, interesting statements about dreams. They particularly tend to come up in uh, Masechet Brachot. In the first chapter of the Talmud um, that talks about primarily blessings, but there's a chapter that really focuses in on dreams. And there's a few statements. One is that Chalom Echad Mishishim that a dream can be one sixtieth of prophecy. Right? That there's some kind of kernel of truth in every dream. Um, which I think it's interesting that like modern um, psychology has picked up on that as well. And um, we often, uh, I think therapists often turn towards lucid dreams um, to understand like what's not, not that the dream is itself a reality, but there's some kind of kernel within it that might come to fruition, um, or that might talk about a person's inner experience. And then the second one that I thought was powerful, Rukhista in the Talmud says, um, that a dream that hasn't been interpreted is like a letter that hasn't been opened. Um, it's like it's a lost opportunity to have this communication either with God, maybe, or with your internal self, maybe your subconscious. Right. So there is something here powerful to the dreams. Um, and I wanted to kind of understand more in my personal understanding, in my personal learning of the Parsha, um, what was like the internal meaning? Um, if Joseph was just trying to communicate to his brother something simplistic of I'm better than you, or you know, I'm gonna be the leader and you guys are all kind of, you're all gonna be followers, right? Then, well, that's fine. But why does the Torah spend the time to tell us about the imagery of the dreams? I could have just said, you know, Yosef dreamt that he would be the leader of his brothers. Um, so that, that was kind of my next question. Have you ever thought about the metaphor or the imagery in the dreams? Right. So, I mean, I, I've always thought of the metaphor just in terms of like the base of the metaphor, just that they'll bow down to him. And he saw it in this imaginary way because like that's how people dream. Yeah. But never in the way you're formulating it, I don't think. Cool. So my yeah. friend Dan Cohen reminded me of this piece from Rabbi Soloveitchik, um, and then I started digging around, and I realized that I'd actually taught it a few years ago and had totally forgotten about it. So again, <laughs> thanks to Dan for reminding me. Uh, so Rav Soloveitchik and Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch. Uh, Rav Soloveitchik was a great modern Orthodox thinker in uh, the 20th century, and Rabbi Hirsch was probably the founder of what we would now call modern Orthodoxy in Germany in the 1800s. They both point out in particular in the first dream, 
how shocking to the brothers it would be to hear a dream about sheaves of wheat. Because the brothers and the entire family of Yaakov, going back three generations, um, they, were, they were not farmers, they were shepherds. Right. These were nomads just wandering around the Middle East, um, tending to their flock. And the idea in the, the metaphor or the imagery in the first dream must have been stunning to the brothers. What Yosef's basically telling them is there's a new world order coming. And at some point, we're not just going to survive as farmers, any, uh, as shepherds anymore. We're going to have to till the land. We're gonna, right, we're going to settle down. Right, To be a farmer, you can't be a nomad. You have to live somewhere. And that's how um, the, both Rabbi Salvatic and Rabbi Hirsch um, explain the first dream. Uh, the rub takes it a step further, which is that the brothers you know, get shocked by this first image. And then the second image of the solar system or the, you know, the stars and the moon and the sun um, is taking it, is really upping the ante. Because then what Yosef is telling them is that you know, we're basically like, we're leaving Earth behind. Right? Everything you know is going to change fundamentally. It's like, basically, we're going off into the stars. Um, and what Yosef is trying to communicate to the brothers in Rabbi Salvatric's reading is that the world we knew, the world of Canaan, uh, the world of living in Israel is about to come to an end. Um, we're going to have to adjust to living in this new place. And the brothers knew, according to Rabbi Soloveitchik, and Yosef knew, and Yaakov, the father, knew that this was eventually going to happen. Right? The prophecy was given to Abraham that his descendants would be strangers in a foreign land, in the land of Egypt. And so on some level, intellectually, they knew that things were going to change. But they didn't want to admit that it was about to happen except for Yosef, who basically said, we're, we're about to face a new world order. Forget farming, right? Mm -hmm. We're about to go off into the stars, the sky, and deal with a life experience that we've never faced until now. Um, and for Rabbi Soloveitchik, that's what the brothers couldn't handle. That's why they really hated Yosef. They hated Joseph. They couldn't accept um, that there was this entirely new world order that was about to happen. They wanted things to stay the same. Um, Egypt represented this cosmopolitan, uber-modern land. Um, something I, I think about from time to time, especially being in the Bay Area, where right. um, all of life seems to be somehow influenced by the tech world and by startup culture, and disruption is considered to be like the highest standard of success. Um, if you can disrupt industries in ways that things have kind of been going until now, um, then you've really made it in the world. And so Yosef, mm -hmm. in his dreams, is like the first or the, the, the biggest disruptor to the lifestyle that Yaakov uh, and his family have been living uh, at this point right. for three generations. And I'm uh, sure there's, and, and we see that, that there's always so much pushback for the people that are in power instead of like kind of leaning into it and see, oh, how is that going to happen? How can we help? Um, they yeah. kind of they fight back. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's interesting, at least in this reading, if, if you take go back to that Midrash, about Yaakov guarding the matters that he's writing down, he's accepting it as fate. Um, that Yaakov, even though he can't lead into the change, he accepts that the change is coming, which I think mm. is kind of interesting. Um, right. And if you think about that kind of metaphor of um, agriculture being this new world order, of the stars and the moon and the sun, and the sun being this even higher level of the new world order, um, when you then trace the rest of the story, of the brothers coming down to Egypt and facing the viceroy, um, it's then reading that story takes a whole new layer of meaning um, because you know, now Yosef is feeding them grain, and they come down because they need grain. 
so it's kind of it's this moment where the, the ends of Brayshit is this proof of concept that everything mm-hmm. Joseph said is really going to be true. Right, um, and that, that that inflection point happens when they get wheat and when they bow down to him. Yeah, and all of a sudden everything changed. Right. Then, and then they come down to Egypt, and now they, you know the story radically yeah. goes differently. Right, and Yosef becomes this figure of it's almost like I told you so. Um, what I think Yosef learns though is not to rub it in his brothers' faces, right? Is not to insult them um, by the end of the story, but to say, you know, I, I'm your brother. Haod Abichai is my is my father still alive? I'm still part of this community. Uh, the way Rabbi Salvation describes it is that um, uh, what Yosef is really focused on is ensuring the continuity of the family as the world is going to change. That like he understood that we need to stick together. And we need to prepare to survive um, the unexpected future. Um, so he wasn't he wasn't trying to overcome his family. He was just the only person who could do this work of kind of building the foundation for the next generation of Jewry that would be a Jewry in exile, living in Egypt, living among foreigners, um, which is so powerful. Uh, what I think ultimately, you know, my takeaway from this, um, and I'm curious to hear what you think, is that dreams and disruption and change is not something bad. But what we do have to have a lot of sensitivity to is that as we're building a new world order, uh, we don't do it in such a way that insults the people who came before us. Mm-hmm. Um, like that was, that's Yosef's na'arut. Right? That's his like uh, childishness. Right? He was smart from the beginning, according to this he, he knew he had this amazing insight prophecy, you could call it maybe like predict, you know, the ability to forecast the future or predict. You know, we, we have stockbrokers and you know, tech experts who build computer programs to do this today. But as you're disrupting the present reality, are you doing it with Derek Eretz? Are you doing it with respect? Um, are you doing it by like, acknowledging the great gifts of the people who came before you? Um, are, you um, are you acknowledging the pain that the disruption is going to bring upon the people who like life the way it is? Um, th- those are the that's the thought from, that's the thought that I'm taking away with me, which is that like change is good, uh, and we all deal with change. And Judaism has dealt with change. We've all learned how to evolve in, in modern day America and live deeply Jewish lives even here. Um, but it has to be done in a way that doesn't insult the past. Uh, all right. So that, that's I, kind I, of my uh, yeah, there, I was listening to a podcast recently. Uh, it was an interview with Daniel Al- Daniel Eck. He's the one of the founders of Spotify, oh, cool. uh, which is like a streaming service for music. Yeah. Um, so when he when he started, everyone was pirating music, was mm-hmm. stealing music essentially off the internet for free. Yeah. And obviously, the music industry Good hated that. Napster. Yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> the, the music industry was was super skeptical about any online service because like they saw it was stealing everything. But he went and did it in like in the way you're talking about, where he tried to get buy-in from producers, and he got buy-in from people to try and like make it so it was like almost like a done in like a menchie type of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and he's you know Spotify obviously now is like one of is a huge billion-dollar company, um, largely to do because he was able to like kind of hold on to that past and bring it, usher it in instead of. Uh, you know, just being like, forget about them. Yeah, um, that's really powerful. 
in the Jewish experience, I, I this this um, Svar Torah that I, really brought me to thinking about the first generations of Europe, East European Jewish immigrants, like coming to this foreign land and not knowing how to deal with it, and many children just wanting a total break with the past, and then trying to find this middle ground of like how do you live um, a modern life by holding on to the anti uh, the authenticity of your past religious experience and practice. Uh, in many ways, for me, this is like the um, the task of modern Judaism and modern Orthodoxy in particular is to strike this balance. A lot to think about. Well, I'm, I'm sure, well, if you have any thoughts, if you have any advice, I'm all yours. Right. Um, so I actually, you know, I mean, like I have this conversation a lot in Shul um, because it's, I, I'm in like a 90-year-old Shul mm -hmm. that has like a bunch of members that have been there for 40 years. At the same time, everyone else is brand new and just moved in and is, you know, half their age, if not less. And um, it's, it's, I kind of think on some level it's organic and that, that push just needs to be with everyone's input and not, not, uh, not just moving forward without, you know, the previous generation's input, but also, yeah, you know, also seeing how you can do it. Right. You need the Aviv Shamar to Devar buy-in of like right. the previous generation, yeah, sure. like saying that I think there's insight and wisdom here, um, which is challenging. You know, I think I'd love to talk to you more about it because I think our um, communities actually have a lot in common. Beth Jacobs has been around for like 125 years and wow. has, like like your community, I think many different generations. And there, there are conversations that the, uh, the younger people, I think many of our millennials, are looking for a different Jewish experience. Um, than members who've been here for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, right. It's an, it's an interesting life that we show rabbis have, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's going to keep on changing, but like in an organic way where, you know, you find out what works for the community and that just keeps on, the, since the community keeps on changing, the, the, uh, the experience in Shul keeps on changing. Right. Um, and kind of, Figuring out that balance is like a constant struggle, um, yeah. and I think that on some level is the what modern orthodoxy is about is about like living in that struggle, and being okay with it. So just give me one second. Um, okay. yep. Uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Right, no, so I just think that's what, uh, like, a modern orthodoxy on, a, on its whole is trying to, like, live in that struggle, mm -hmm. um, live in that struggle or that, that confluence of two separate ideas and try and figure it out in, like, a way that makes sense and is nice and is, you know, appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think, as and you like said, just, yeah. right, right, living in the struggle is probably the most meaningful part um, right. as opposed to just you know d either denying that the struggle exists at all um, and then fading to one side or the other um, or siloing you know, deciding that you know I don't want any of this modernity right. or I don't want any of this tradition um, yeah it's a, it's a holy problem Very interesting okay uh, is it okay if we switch over yeah, to. yeah. So what I what I wanted to talk about is just something that I think I mean some people here might might know what I'm talking about a little bit at first, 
um, but it's a cheap who sold you the um, You might be listening and be like, what do you mean, who sold Yosef? The brother sold Yosef. Um, but if you look in the text, it's a little weird. Um, and as far as I see, like there's two large opinions, even though there's a bunch of small ones. Um, I think they kind of fall under two categories. So I'm in chapter 37, verse 23. Um, it's the beginning of um, it's the beginning of the Aliyah. Um, so they put him into the pit in verse 24. And in 25, it says they they go down to eat a meal and they lifted their eyes and behold, the caravan of, of Yishmaelim were coming. Then later, um, they say, let's sell, let's sell Yosef to them. But then, in 28, then Midianite men, merchants passed by, and they, who's they, pulled and lifted Yosef from the pit and sold Yosef to the Ishmaelim. So, one possibility is that either the Midianites are the same people as the Ishmaelim, or maybe the, the brothers pulled him up, sold him to the Midianites, who then sell him to the Ishmaelim. Um, so that's one kind of approach, is that the brothers did sell Yosef, and that's the one you probably have heard of, because that's what Rashi quotes, um, that they sold them to Midian, and the Midianites sold them to Ishmaelim. Um, but there's another approach, is that the brothers went away to eat lunch, and the Midianites were passing by and just were like, oh, there's this guy here, we can just take him. And he's being just taken from the pit, the Midianites pull him out from the pit, and then sell him to the Ishmaelim. Um, for 20 silver pieces. And that's when the brothers come back, they're all confused. Um, mm-hmm. They come in 30, and the boy is gone. What What am I going to do? Right? Ruben comes and is all confused. And yeah. no one knows what's going on. And that kind of explains that. Um, that's a great one. However, later on, Yehuda says they sold him. So it's like a weird mix. Yeah. Did you? That's like a really interesting reading, because I think from a like, Shuzo Shemikra approach, from a simple reading of the text, uh, verse 30 reads a lot better than you that way. Right. Never looked at it right. so, I, th- I think thir- 28 and 30 reads better if you say that the Ishmaelites took him out and then sold him to the Ishmaelim. However, it, later in, in Vayigash, um, Yehuda says that, like they say that we're sorry we're sold you, basically. So that doesn't read so well if... Um, if there's if they didn't sell it, which is what are they saying they sold them for? Um, so it's like a weird mix. Um, I, I did think two things were interesting about this. Is one, um, just depending on that, I think you read like later stories very differently because if they didn't sell him, they didn't know what happened to him. When they go to their father and say that he died, they might not be lying so much, you know. Um, and so that's yeah. Is it 
did they lose their brother or did they sell their brother? And I feel like that's different. In some ways, Some level though, uh, like a second level to this, is maybe even if they didn't sell him, like the fact that they take responsibility for it later is, I think, one just an interesting message in terms of like if you kind of let something happen or you're negligent and happen, like you're responsible. Uh, and that kind of holds up in American law. Um, and they take, and the fact I think it's part of Yehuda's like, growth is that he takes responsibility for it, even though he didn't quite do it. Yeah. Um, I think there's yeah. uh, this beautiful like narrative arc with Yehuda of a person who, at, you know, at the beginning, um, says to his brothers, like, why should we kill our brother and just sell him? Like, Ma betza. Like, what can we gain out of it? And he's someone who doesn't want to do the wrong thing, but he also wants to gain from it. And eventually, he's someone who's willing to take responsibility as like the leader of the pack, even if he wasn't fully responsible. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's really becomes a pattern. I mean, you know, he becomes the, the most important brother, maybe. Yeah. Um, in the end. Well, that was my, um, I don't do a podcast, but I do a Facebook podcast on Monday mornings. And that was the topic oh, of cool. the, uh, Monday morning class. Right, right. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, if I'm not mistaken, he says that Yehuda becomes uh, the father of Jewish leadership because he's willing to like take responsibility no matter what the context. Right. Um, mm. Just really important, really important lesson. Um, so w- I'm curious, where did you get that second reading from? Is it your own or did you see it in a commentary? Oh, oh no, definitely not my own. Um, so, I mean, the Rashbam most famously says it, mm-hmm. um, but Rosamson, Rafal Hirsch, and the Malbim, and I, I believe the Ramban also also says it. Oh, cool. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's not the mainstream ones. Um, in its essence, I mean, just because we always learn it like Rashi mm-hmm. um, and like the little major says and whatever. Um, but yeah. um, but that's really a midrashic, almost a midrashic reading. Like the the more, I mean, it depends. It kind of depends which text you hold um, more right. strictly to. But if you're holding strictly to this text, it does seem like they didn't even know it happened. Yeah. yeah. Even though that's what they were planning on doing anyways. But. They just missed out on the twenty pieces of silver or whatever. So what do, you, what do you think their intentions were coming to the second reading? Do you think they really wanted to sell him? Or Right, so I think I think they were planning on it. I'm not sure if they would have really gone through with it. Um, I don't know. Do you but, think they might have had a of guilt again? Yeah, I mean they definitely had a pang of guilt, but they were probably more shocked than than sorry. Yeah. You know? Like it seems like at least Ruven seems sorry. Um, but yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah, it's for me. It's reminded me of some of the halachic conversations about uh, being a shomer, being uh, an unpaid right. guardian uh, for property. Um, you know, just, yeah, and I, I think maybe that's why they take responsibility because right, they, they're uh, yeah. they're this guardian and they're negligent with it. Are you there, Ken? For sure. Sorry, my computer froze. Uh, but you're saying they take responsibility. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I, I think it's exactly what you're saying. Like, right. so they're a guardian. They, 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 and negligence, I think, you know, they were negligent law, with that. Be obligated to and so they feel damages. sorry for it. So I think they're really kind of holding that guilt on um, with them. Yeah. So what do, what do you think that's, like, right. can teach, you know, us in our contemporary situations? Like, I don't think most of us end up throwing siblings in pits and, uh. Right. <laughs> yeah, I... I Right. Well, I hope not. Um, but but I think it's a pretty powerful concept. Is that like, you know, stand like being negligent is almost like doing it. Um, that they kind of maybe take responsibility for it, and they should take responsibility for it uh, because right. it happens, and it doesn't matter that they didn't actually do it. But what matters is that they didn't stop it from happening, um, and. I think that happens a lot in people's lives where they have the opportunity to help or they have the t opportunity to stop something from happening and right. they, they don't, they're not doing the bad thing. Um, but, but they might be right. kind of, I that's the quote like, from you know, that, from that, that apathy right? um, the is the opposite of doing good. Type be, of thing. I think it's the opposite of good is not evil. The opposite of good is indifferent. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember the exact quote, and but, Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. They're right. at worst at this point. They're in the fact that they left him in like a you know, desert. They're, they're which negligent. At least according to the Rashi, according to Rashi, he was in a pit. They take responsibility for snakes. Like, let's say you want you're angry with your brother and you want to kind of show him a lesson, and so you like put him in a pit. But right. to not even care enough to make to like keep a guard to make sure that there's you know someone who's going to be there in case right. he screams at and says like help I've been bit. Um, that's like a pretty high level of apathy or indifference and right, i think that's a beautiful lesson right. and it's a really practical takeaway yeah. also um for right. for us like you know, for sure. it can be applied in so many different settings of uh, again taking responsibility yeah yeah um thank you for having right. me this was a lot of fun uh, yeah so um Unless you have any other thoughts, um, if, thank you so no, much for being on. Nothing else, just uh, um, catching up with my highlights. Yeah, was great. And nice to nice uh, to catch up a little bit too. Yeah, yeah, great. And for those, oh yeah, absolutely. And for those listening, uh, pay attention for more episodes of In the Podcast.